following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from LifePoint Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans 8 verses 1 through 4 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." Well, you know, when I, when I plan to preach through the book of Romans, one of the things I was most looking forward to is getting to Romans chapter 8. And so, we're about, I don't know, we're 10 months into this series or so, and we've finally made it uh, to Romans chapter 8. And uh, Romans 8 is a wonderful chapter of Scripture. If, if, I, if, if I had to pick my favorite chapter in the Bible, it would be Romans chapter 8. It's a wonderful chapter. And it begins here in verse 1 with the wonderful promise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with an equally incredible promise in verse 39 that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Great promises. And between those amazing bookends, Paul describes the incredible security that the child of God has in the love of God, in the the assurance of salvation and eternity. And so this is a wonderful, assuring, secure chapter that God has given to us in Christ. And and, and all these promises have nothing to do with us. Romans 8 is going to drive home the fact that we have these assurances because all three members of the Trinity... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are working together to bring us from believing the gospel to seeing Christ in heaven someday. And so I know that God will sustain me, and I know that God will bring me to glory, not because of something in me, but because God has committed Himself to me. And so we can be sure of our relationship to God, and we can be sure of our eternal home, and Romans 8 is going to tell us why we can be confident of those things. And that's great news. But but it's especially great news considering where this chapter falls in the book of Romans. So so remember that that in chapter 7, Paul just finished describing his failure as a Pharisee to earn salvation by keeping the law. And, and, And again, we talked about the fact that no one was better positioned to earn salvation and to avoid his own condemnation than Paul. I mean, he was born in the right setting. He had all the credentials. He had all the training. He was driven to to earn salvation by keeping the law. But what does Romans 7 tell us? Paul failed. He couldn't keep the law. And so he cries out in despair at the end of it all in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of his death? And so Paul, as a a Pharisee, he tried and he tried to try 
to, to earn salvation by the law, and, he, and all he did was end up condemned, despairing, and defeated. And, and so the, the, the message is, is that mankind has no hope of escaping condemnation in his own strength. And right after all that, Romans 8 comes along and answers Paul's despair. And it declares that God did for us and is doing in us what we could never do for ourselves. And He will finish the process that He began. And the passage, the chapter begins with a bang in the passage we're going to look at today. And again, this passage describes how all three members of the Trinity are working for our salvation from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And so, uh, verse 1 begins, or verses 1 and 2 begin the passage by by declaring the promise, I've got to get this thing on, that that God's promise of assurance. And so notice the assurance again of verse 1. There is therefore, he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So God, first of all, promises the Christian no condemnation. That's a great verse, isn't it? It's a wonderful, wonderful assurance. You know, it's, it's probably one of the most quoted verses in the book of Romans and, and one that we can lean on in hard times. But again, it's important to just feel the weight of how this verse should hit us in light of everything that's going on around us. So, so the word now is a little word that we could easily skip over in this verse. But, but in the context of Romans, the word now represents a major shift in God's salvific plan. So remember that chapter 6, verse 14 said that sin will not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And so we've talked about the fact that that we are no longer in the age of the law of Moses, which which condemned and, and only could reveal our sin. No, we live in the age of grace, a different time. And chapter 7 explained why that transition was necessary. Because because we couldn't keep the law. We couldn't earn salvation. And so we needed something else. So so the law leaves man condemned and despairing. But now, Paul says in chapter 8, verse 1, we live in a new era. We live in the age of grace. And Paul here sums up everything that it means to live in the age of grace with that simple phrase that we are in grace. Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live in the age of grace? It means I am in Christ Jesus. Now we've talked about this phrase a good amount, particularly in chapter 6, but but that phrase really really summarizes what it is that God has done for us and and how we stand in Him. And and this phrase uh, just it, it pictures the fact, first of all, that Christ lived a perfect life. He, he died a substitutionary death. He rose in victory over sin. And, and, and through those actions, Jesus secured for His people every spiritual blessing. He accomplished redemption. And when someone believes the gospel, we are, all that work is applied to us in Christ. When we get saved, we are united to Christ And every blessing He secured comes to us. We are justified. We are redeemed. We are reconciled. We are regenerated. We are adopted into God's family. And on and on we could go. And all of that comes to me in Christ Jesus. 
And because I am in Christ Jesus, God assures us in this verse that there is no condemnation for everyone who is in Christ. A condemnation, of course, is a judicial term. And, and remember that, that Romans often describes the gospel in, in terms of a courtroom. So, so we have all sinned against God. And so when we go to the courtroom of God and, and, and we are put on the defense stand again, or the def- on the defense against God and God is the judge, when He looks at us, we have all sinned against God. And so every one of us deserves to be condemned as guilty in the courtroom of God and we deserve the condemnation of eternal wrath in hell. And so, and so we've also seen that, that we have no hope of escaping that condemnation in ourselves. Now, the law of Moses, that was man's best shot at, at escaping that condemnation on his own. Because God gave us the way, and He, he, he gave us a law, a standard, that, that if we could meet that, we could earn salvation. But in the hands of sinners, the law could not help us escape condemnation. We couldn't keep it. And so it could only reveal our sin and our hopeless condition. And so all of us are doomed on our own. And therefore, considering everything that Paul has said, and especially how he closes chapter 7, the promise of chapter 8, verse 1, is just incredible. I mean, if you are in Christ, you have No reason to fear condemnation. No reason at all. And why is that? Well, it's because of the opposite reality from condemnation, which is justification. So so when I put my faith in the gospel, when I believe the gospel, I am placed in Christ. And when I'm placed in Christ, God forgives all of my sin. He doesn't just remove my sin, He also replaces it, he he credits to me the perfect righteousness of his son. And because I am in Christ, because his righteousness is, is credited to me, God can declare me not guilty. And it's an incredible gift. And it's incredible considering how sinful we are and how broken we are. And and so no matter how long you've been saved, I know for most of us in this room what I'm saying right now is is old hat. We've heard this many times. We know this well. We've talked about it a lot in the series. But no matter how, how well you know these things, I hope that we will never lose sight of how incredible it is that God justifies sinners like us and that we have no fear of condemnation. Now, Jesus, well, John 3, uh, verse 18 says, whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so without Christ, if you do not believe the gospel, you are condemned. And there is nothing you can do to escape that yourself. And they are, eternal condemnation is a a terrible reality. But in Christ, there is now no condemnation. We have a great Savior. And He has given us a marvelous gift. And so Christian, I hope that every day of your life you give thanks. That you will never face the condemnation that you deserve. But but even if we understand that truth well, Satan works really hard to, to distract us from that truth 
and to maybe even get us to believe it's not true. Now, Revelation 12, verse 10, calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. And he loves to go after us, right? You know, he loves especially to go after, you know, some of you have, have very sensitive consciences na- naturally, and, and so you're very introspective and you're, you're prone to doubt. You know, other people, other Christians, they, they really struggle with certain habitual sins, or maybe you've got certain issues from your past that you're very ashamed of. And Satan is really good at reminding you of those things. Dragging those things to the surface and and causing you to to, to question the love of God. Now, Now folks, we absolutely should grieve over our sin. But what Satan wants to do is he wants to turn legitimate grief into feelings of insecurity regarding my standing with God and God's commitment to me. And so he plants seeds of doubt regarding God's love for you and your heart. And, and, then, and as a result, and, and what he wants you to do is instead of running to God as the answer to that, he, causes you, or he wants you to run away from God. He wants you, instead of running into his arms, to think, well, maybe God's not so keen on me. And we begin to run away from him instead of towards him. And it devastates spiritual progress. Because you can't mature spiritually or enjoy an intimate walk with the Lord if you are not quite sure that God loves you and truly accepts you. And so when Satan tempts you to despair, lean in on Romans 8 verse 1. I mean, if you are in Christ, you don't have any reason to fear God's condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what does no mean? It means no. There is no condemnation if you are in Christ. God's people will never be condemned and we should praise God that we are forever safe in Christ. And nothing can take that away. And then verse 2 tells us why we have this confidence. And it also makes a second promise. Not only do we not need to fear condemnation, we also do not need to fear bondage to sin. So verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, now this verse, you can see, is, is built on a contrast all right, between two laws. There's the law of the Spirit of life, and there is as well the law of sin and death. But we need to notice that, that neither of these laws is the, are the law of Moses, which factored so heavily into chapter 7. And I think you can just see that in context, it wouldn't make sense for either of these specifically to be the law of Moses. So, so here, the word law means principle or authority. So he's talking about a governing authority in someone's life. And so verse 2 describes a change in authority. So first, the unbeliever is under the law, or you could say the authority of sin and death. They, they dominate his life. And they drive his behavior. But in Christ, I have a new authority. We are now, he says, under the authority or the control of the Spirit of life. What's that? That's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to play a huge role in Romans chapter 8. In fact, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit by name 19 times in Romans chapter 8. And that's because... 
that the Spirit's ministry is one of the most dramatic differences but between the age of the law and the age of grace. And the Spirit changes everything. Now, now Paul hinted at this dramatic change uh, back in chapter 7, verse 6. So, so look at what he says there. He says, but now we have been released from the law. And there it's the law of Moses. We've been released from the law of Moses, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So, so the law could only condemn, right? Because it didn't give sinners any power to obey it. And of course, as you move through the Old Testament story, as you move towards the end, as, as Israel nears exile, and as they struggle and fail over and over to obey God's law, and as judgment becomes imminent, in, in fact, even as a Nebuchadnezzar has already come in and began to, began to pull people out of Jerusalem, God promises Israel that this is not how it will always be. Someday, He's going to establish a new covenant that didn't just tell people what to do, but gave them the power to do it. And so, specifically, He says in Ezekiel um, Ezekiel 36, verses 25-27, through I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And what Paul is saying here in chapter 8 verse 2 is that age of the spirit has arrived. And the Holy Spirit is the one who who applies to the sinner everything that Jesus accomplished on the cross. So the New Testament tells us that that, that when you get saved, it is the Holy Spirit who places you in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 says the Holy Spirit places you in the body of Christ, speaking of the church. The Holy Spirit regenerates us and He comes to dwell inside of us. You know, it's fascinating that that Jesus tells us in John 14 and 15, it is better for us that the Holy Spirit lives inside my heart than having Jesus standing in this room. Now, now we would think that'd be pretty cool if Jesus was standing here, right? But Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away, because if I don't go, the Spirit will not come. It is better to have the Holy Spirit in your heart than to have Jesus standing here. That's incredible to consider. And so we have the Holy Spirit of God. And this verse especially notes that the Spirit applies Christ's victory over sin. So He liberates us from sin's dominion. And He empowers us to pursue righteousness in a way that we could not do otherwise. So so God has not simply declared us righteous. Paul is telling us that He has empowered us to be righteous through His Spirit. And, and again, that, that's just incredible to think about when you set that in, in contrast to what we just saw in Romans chapter 7. I mean, look at, what, look at Paul's defeat in chapter 7, verse 23. He says, as an, unbelieving, uh, as an unsaved man, I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, 
which is in my members. You know, both chapter 7, verse 23, and chapter 8, verse 2 say that in my natural state, sin and death are overwhelming powers. I'm a prisoner to them. And because of that, I'm condemned. It's hopeless. It's awful. But but then chapter 8 comes along and says that the new age of the Holy Spirit changes everything. That through the Christ, the Holy Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, now again, that doesn't mean that I'm perfect or that I never sin. All right? Because we all sin often. As I said last week, we still live in sin-cursed bodies. We all still have a sin nature. And 1 Peter 2.11 says of believers that we have fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And that's going to be with us till the day that we die. But, but the reality is, is that I am no longer enslaved to sin. And I can make progress towards holiness. In fact, verse 4 says that in some sense, I can fulfill the requirements of the law. And, and chapter 6, verse 14 said that sin will not be my master. And so the victory of Christ applied by the Holy Spirit changes everything. It's a wonderful gift. Now, now before we get to a little more application, I want to consider the connection between verses 1 and 2. Because notice that the word for links these two verses together. And so, and so it seems to say that verse 2, all right, new life in the Spirit, is the reason for verse 1, no condemnation. So, so in, one, in what sense is freedom from sin the basis of no condemnation? And isn't the substitutionary death of Christ the only basis of my justification? And the simple answer is yes. Yes. We, we can never do enough, even in the Spirit's power, to come remotely close to earning heaven. Your only hope of salvation is Christ. But Romans 6 taught that union with Christ does a lot more than just address our legal standing with God. Because when you you get saved, when you receive Christ, you enter a relationship that that transforms everything about you. God is not working, we talk about this in chapter 6, God's not merely working to fill heaven with as many people as possible. No, He's working to transform us into the image of His Son to make worshipers of God. And therefore, even though a sanctification can never produce justification, all right, we need to be clear about that. Sanctification is essential to God's work of salvation. And that's a basic assumption of Romans 6-8. through 8. We need freedom from sin. You know, God's not done when you pray and ask Jesus into your heart. He's only beginning His ultimate work of conforming you to the image of Christ. And so the practical transformation that the Holy Spirit produces is essential to God's overall work of salvation. It doesn't pay for our condemnation, but it does stand necessarily alongside it. You can't separate the two. You can't be justified and then just remain a crummy, you know, enslaved sinner who is going nowhere. God is necessarily changing you into the image of Christ. And verse 2 says that as we see the Spirit sanctifying us, it it bolsters our confidence that we are safe from condemnation. So, So the new life that you have in the Spirit, 
It is a sign of the work of God in your life, and it's a source of tremendous insurance and encouragement. And it should be as well a source of great joy. I mean, Christian, Christ has freed you from bondage to sin. You can live to God. So so when was the last time you thanked God for new life in the Spirit? Or you said, Holy Spirit, thank you that you are with me. Thank you for the work that you're doing in my life. And then, of course, we have to live it out day by day. You know, I am not a slave to sin any longer. So, So I need to believe it. I need to get up tomorrow morning believing that I have new life in the Spirit and and committed to living it out and acting like it. So so God's given us two wonderful gifts. No condemnation, no bondage. And then verse 3 describes how God provided those blessings. Verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So, so Paul here makes this point by, by contrasting uh, the, 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 the impotence of the law with the new power that we have in Christ. So, so let's talk first about the impotence of the law. And so verse 3 is, is really just a quick summary of everything that Paul said in chapter 7. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. So, so the law, again, cannot produce genuine godliness in people who are dead in sin. Now, now the law, again, was very good at telling people what they were supposed to do. But but they couldn't do it because they didn't have power in themselves. And so the law could not solve our bondage to sin. And so even though the law is holy and righteous and good, it it couldn't save. It could only reveal our sin and, and in some sense make it even worse. But thankfully, God didn't leave us to our condemnation. Now, the center of verse 3 is the glorious good news that God did something about it, right? Now, I mentioned earlier that this passage mentions all three members of the Trinity. And so here, in the middle of verse 3, is where God the Father enters the equation. So we've already seen Christ and the Holy Spirit, but, but the Father here, he says, ordained God's entire plan of salvation. And by the way, that's, what, that's how the New Testament almost always describes this, the work of God to save us. The Father ordains the plan and sends the Son. Jesus came and He executed the plan. He provided our redemption on the cross. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who applies that redemption to the sinner and, and works in us to grow godliness. So, of course, the the Father's plan changes everything. Because while the law is impotent to save, Christ is powerful to save. And and Paul here describes Christ's mighty work in three stages. So, first, he says God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Of course, that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. That Jesus did not grasped tightly to the glories of heaven. No, instead, He embraced all the limitations of human flesh. And and the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, became one of us, even as He truly remained God. And concerning this, Paul says, 
He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, that's kind of an, an, an odd kind of head-scratching little phrase, in the likeness of sinful flesh. What, what's he mean by that? Is he saying that he didn't actually have flesh or that he wasn't truly a man? Well, well we know that Paul can't mean that Jesus was not truly human because many times in Scripture he, he affirms the true humanity of Jesus. So, so I think Doug Moo does a good job of explaining the thought when he says, that Paul, by by using this phrase, likeness of sinful flesh, is walking a fine line. On the one hand, he wants to insist that Christ fully entered the human condition. On the other hand, he must avoid suggesting that Christ so participated in this realm that he became imprisoned in the flesh. So, So he uses this phrase, likeness of sinful flesh, to say Jesus truly is a man. He became one of us. But there's a really important difference between us and Him. And that is that He never sinned. He never had a sin nature or anything to the effect. And then as a man, the second stage He mentions is that He became an offering for sin. Now it's possible, and I think even likely, that that Paul here means to say that He became a sin offering. Referring to to one of the primary sacrifices in the Old Testament law. And so he didn't just come and and die, he became our sin offering. We know the story. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says that, that, that he, speaking of God the Father, made him, speaking of Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So Jesus is holy and righteous and good. But He took on Himself our sin in the cross. He took our guilt. And He endured God's wrath against our sin. And He bore it. He took our punishment. And folks, that is the fundamental reason that we don't have to fear condemnation. Because Jesus took our sin out of the way. It was nailed to the cross, Colossians 2 says. And He took it out of the way. And so because of that, we can escape condemnation. It's not because of anything in us. It's because Christ took our sins away. And so if you have never received Christ, you don't have to, be, you don't have to fear the condemnation of God. You can be saved if you will simply receive Christ by faith. And so maybe you're, you're feeling the weight of your condemnation today. When you came into church day and recognizing that you are a broken sinner, maybe there's a part of you that thought, I don't even know if I should go to a place like a church. I'm a pretty rotten scoundrel. I've got problems. Well, well, please understand that Christ died for sin. And and He will forgive your sin. He will justify your soul if you come to Christ. So, So just pray. Tell God that you've sinned against Him, that you've broken His law, And and repent of your sin, to turn from your sin to Christ and believe on Christ as your Savior. And if you do that, you will be saved. You will be placed in Christ and God promises that you will never face condemnation. You will be safe in Him. If you have questions about how to receive Christ, we'd love to talk with you afterwards. So praise the Lord that Christ became our sin offering. He bore our punishment. And then the third stage Paul mentions 
is that Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. Now, that's another kind of interesting description of Christ's cross work. And, and so, we know that we were condemned, and we know that Jesus bore our condemnation, but how did Jesus condemn sin? Well, well the idea seems to be that even as Jesus was judged for our sin in, the body, in His body, He also, in some sense, judged sin. So, specifically, when Jesus died on the cross... He broke sin's tyranny over us. And and He annulled its power, its ability to condemn us and to enslave us. And that's a beautiful thought to consider because think about the fact that for thousands of years, ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, sin had strutted about the earth, so to speak. Arrogant, proud, dominating the world as a big bully. But on the cross, Jesus exposed sin And he humiliated it. He he condemned it. He broke its tyranny over mankind. And someday he will destroy sin completely. In Romans 8, it is going to mention uh, just various different works that God has done to offer us assurance. But Christian, don't ever forget that the cross is the center of it all. You know, sometimes we get distracted from the cross. We get caught up in all sorts of other things, even good things. And Satan loves to play some terrible mind games. You'll make us feel certain things. And, and so when you feel lost, when you feel overwhelmed, when you feel discouraged and frustrated, always run to the cross as the anchor of your soul. The cross is the answer to every fear of condemnation. It's the answer to every discouragement. And so we should pray, Jesus, keep me near the cross because that is our hope. So verse 3 says that God has made a wonderful provision. And then finally, verse 4 describes God's purpose in it all. Verse 4 says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, so, so God says that His purpose in the cross was so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, that was not God's only purpose in the cross. But it is a very important one. And so, again, I mean, a, a verse like this should put to bed any thought that, that, that it is okay to you know, just get saved and then go nowhere as a Christian. No, God's salvation is never just about giving us a magic pill to solve whatever woes we hope that Jesus will fix and to do our own thing. No, Jesus died so that those in Christ would fulfill the requirements of the law. He saves us for the purpose of changing us. And, and so now, now we do need to ask, what, exact, what law exactly is he talking about? Because because, again, law does not always mean the same thing throughout this section. So, so, he can't mean the law of Moses. Because he said in chapter 7, verse 6, that, the, that we have been released from the law of Moses. So, so, the point here is not that Jesus saved you so that you could go out and offer sacrifices and maintain all the purity laws that God gave in the Old Testament. No, rather, we should understand this as God's general moral will. 
his, his, his general moral law, which, which the Bible says is built around loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving my neighbor as myself. So God saved me. That, that I would, would fulfill the requirements of the law. And, and chapter 8, verse 29 says, so that specifically I would become like Christ. Look at what he says in chapter 8, verse 29. This is a great verse. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that we would be, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So what is God saying? He's saying that God's purpose in salvation includes the fact that he has predestined us to be changed into the image of Christ. And as I've emphasized several times, that is good news. That is good news. You know, sometimes we, we like to think that the best life is a life of autonomy. You know, that, that what I really want to do is do what I want to do. And chase whatever I feel like, whatever passion comes to my mind, that that's the good life. But, but what sounds better? Living in Romans 7 or living in Romans 8? I'll take Romans 8 every day of the week. God's law, God's will is good. It is for your good. And it ends in eternal glory. So, so we should rejoice that, that God is at work to enable us to fulfill His will and to live out His word. But, but how is that possible? I mean, how is it that I can fulfill the requirements of the law? Well, well, Paul answers at the end of the verse, he says, he describes us as those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, the basic idea behind walking according to either the flesh or the Spirit is to live under the authority or the control of one of those two powers. So, so again, the, the law or the flesh and the, and the Spirit are, are pictured here really as powers that can control someone's life. And, and, and so whatever that power is, it directs your steps and it, and it empowers your actions. And the implication of verse 4 is that before you got saved, you lived under the authority and the power of your flesh. Sin reigned over our lives. And it, and it drove us to rebellion against God. Paul, or Paul says in verse 7, the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. That's a terrible place to be. To be bound in sin and unable to do God's will. And chapter 7 described just how oppressive that is. But through Christ, we are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit provides a brand new power and a brand new direction to life. He provides, uh, so, so God hasn't simply told us what to do. Through the Spirit, He has given us the power to do it. It's a wonderful gift. And so the challenge of verse 4 then is to take advantage of this new life in the Spirit. Now, so Galatians 5 verse 16 says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now that's a command. What, what's the implication of a command? Well, it's that it doesn't automatically happen. Right? You, you have to make choices. You, you have to establish patterns in your life 
that, that lead to the Spirit's control over how we live. Now, now we'll see next week that, that walking by the Spirit will be the normal pattern of a Christian's life. But, while that is so, I must actively rely on the Spirit for strength, and I have to obey His will as given in Scripture. So I have to walk by the Spirit if I'm going to overcome the flesh. I, I can't just you know, you know, tap my toes together and, and wait for God to change me. And, and so if my heart... So, so, so as I live in the Spirit, the Spirit gives strength and power. But of course, as Christians, for times, at times, my heart can become hard towards God's will. And if I'm not looking to His grace, I'm not going to enjoy the same victory. I can, for a time, walk by the flesh. But if I walk by the Spirit, I always have the power to resist the flesh. That's what he says. He says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So this week, take advantage of the new life you have in the Spirit. Now pray to Him for help. Be sensitive to His work, His conviction in your heart. Read the Bible. Because the primary way that God's Spirit ministers to you and changes your heart is as you read the Scriptures and, and He illumines your mind and heart to understand and embrace it. It's what we sang about a moment ago in Speak, O Lord. So read your Bible. Praying for the Spirit to illumine you. you know, and, and as you do those things, as you strive to obey His will, watch Him empower you to do it and to glorify the Lord. So, so don't be content to just kind of limp through your week. You've got a hundred other things going on and, you know, you're hoping you only lose your temper 20 times. No. Strive by the Spirit to please the Lord. Pursue godliness aggressively and with confidence that the Spirit gives you the power to do it. So, folks, there is no better place in the world to be than in Christ Jesus. So if you have never received Christ as your Savior, Please receive Him today. And if you are saved, give thanks for every blessing that is yours. A Christian, rest in the certainty that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then fight sin with confidence that you are free from the law of sin and death. And instead, you have the Spirit of life in you. It's a wonderful gift. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for the Holy Spirit. Thank You for Christ. And thank You for Your purpose in sending Christ to the cross and then in leaving Your Spirit to work and to change us until the day that Christ returns. Oh Lord, I pray for any who are here who do not yet know Jesus as Savior. Lord, we pray that today they would understand the Gospel and be born again. And Lord, for those of us who know you, we ask that we would stay near to the cross and near to these gospel truths every day. And God, that we would fight sin in the strength of the Spirit. And so, give us grace this week to do your will, to glorify you, and to share this incredible hope with everyone around us. In Jesus' name, amen.